Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And he said, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. As we enter into a new series, um, walking through the core values in our community, um, and in fact, uh, this next series, mini-series, is going to be about community. The warmth of our community. It's always been my hope that as a church, the Metro Presbyterian Church, However we grow, whichever direction we head, that we will be growing as a warm and embracing community to all types of people. And, and it's just been such an Im- incredible thing to see that you know, these are things you can't control, and the, the Lord is doing that. And so we're going to be talking about that. What is this value, this core value of community that we have? But kind of as an inner calorie between our uh, talking about our values, I'd like to preach about the heart of uh, the gospel that drives every one of these values, and so um, we're going to talk about the gospel today again. We're going to emphasize or talk about the truths, the foundational truths that, that really th- that this church is based on. The gospel, what is it? It penetrates everything that we understand about God because most of our understandings about God are flawed, immature. Um, and so whether you're um, you know, a skeptic or you grew up in the church, this is absolutely applicable. We need to learn and understand more about this gospel and this passage, <clears throat> for me personally, it's, it's, um, it's like the transformative passage in my life over the course of the last 15 years in my own spiritual journey. So it's a very special text for me. 
And um, part of the reason, if you, it's not printed in your bulletins, but in verses 1 to 3 of this text, I'm just going to read it. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And he goes into a couple parables, but the, the one that we close with here is the parable of the prodigal son. At least that's what, we're, that's what it's known to be. Um, it's a very, very special text for me. Um, why? Beca- and the reason is because maybe, maybe many of you guys can relate with me. I am um, a recovering Pharisee. You know, I am... I am um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a person who's so into, I, I'm addicted to order. I'm addicted to my rights. I'm addicted to my own sense of being right, um, theological truth and knowledge. These are things, I'm addicted to these things. And so um, this passage struck a huge chord, especially because I misinterpreted this passage for most of my life. Um, but the last 15 years, it has been such a sweet thing to go through this and to learn this. And if you're anything like me, whether you're on the religious end or whether you're on the irreligious end, this passage is absolutely applicable because the center of the Christian faith is not a set of teachings. I used to think it was a set of teachings. It's not a set of teachings. It's a story. And so I'm going to invite you to walk through this story with me and plug into this story. And you're going to come, it's my hope that you're going to just walk away with the richness and the fullness of what we mean when we say that this church is centered on the gospel. The parable begins in verses 11 to 12. The younger son approaches the father and asks for his share of the estate. And in a typical Jewish estate, you know, if you're a rich, wealthy Jew, the father would have been absolutely astounded by that request. Why? I mean, he might have even been angry. He might have even kicked out his son for for asking what he asked. And the reason is because typically wealth in the old Jewish tradition was centralized on the older son. We learned this if you walk through any of the passages in Genesis that we've studied together. Wealth was centralized through the elder son. And so the father, you know, the nature of an inheritance is what? It depends on someone dying and giving up all of his wealth. So when the father passes away, The wealth is divided among his sons, and if the father has two sons, the older son always gets the lion's share of the wealth. Usually it could be as low as 60%, 40%, but generally it's very, very high. The elder son usually gets anywhere between two to three times as much of the wealth as the younger son. But here, this is an unbelievable request, um, because really what he's saying, he's asking for his share of the wealth while his father's still alive. And so what he's really saying is, I want you dead. Well, maybe not I want you dead, but I wish you were dead. If you put it another way, it's really, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I want your wealth right now, but I don't really care about my relationship with you. My relationship with you right now is really just a means to an end. And you've got to understand, what's the intent of a parable at all? Why does Jesus speak in parables? The intent of a parable is to astonish the listener. And, uh, you know, who are the listeners? I read to you in verses 1 to 3, the listeners were these tax collectors and sinners on one end. Jesus was kind of hanging out with these guys. But these Pharisees and scribes were watching Jesus meshing with these tax collectors and sinners, and they were very, very upset. They were indignant about that. He says, oh, this man, he's hanging out with these dirty, these low people. And then it says, and so Jesus told them this parable. Jesus is speaking before tax collectors and sinners on one hand 
and the Pharisees, the religious and the irreligious. And uh, he's really talking to the Pharisees. And uh, you've got to understand that the, the whole intent of a parable is to astonish, it's to shock whoever's listening. So you got from their context, the story that he's telling, the story that's unraveling here is intended to shock the people there at that moment that are listening. And they are shocked. There's no doubt that they would be astonished by this request of the younger son talking to his father, insulting his father, telling him that he wants his share of the wealth right now. But you know what's even more astonishing? The father honors him. The father divides up his state. He divides up his state. And, and even though he should have been angry, even though he should have probably had, had every right and justification to kick out his younger son, he divides his estate. The actual language in the text is not his wealth. The father divided up his wealth. But it's actually, the father divided up his bios. That's where we get the word biology. His father divided up his life. Why is that word used? It's because in the ancient days, in a traditional agrarian culture, your life was tied to the land. Your wealth was tied to your land. And so the son asking for you know, his share of the wealth, you know, later on you see his brother complaining. He says you know, he basically squandered the property. Mainly what his father did was he divided up the land, gave up his land, his share of the land already to his younger son. The younger son probably sold it or did something with it, but it accrued a large amount of money and went off. He basically left home. That's what happened here. His father divided up his life. And if you think about this, in this culture, this undignified act of this honorable father who is incredibly wealthy in, this, in a highly respect tradition where you worship the patriarch, the father lets his younger son go. He lets himself be insulted. In fact, what he, he's enduring the worst thing that a human being, agreeably, probably arguably, but agreeably could endure, and that is rejected love. He's pretty much scorned by his son. So gracious. That's the father. The younger son leaves home, and in verse 13, it says that he he goes to a distant land, and he squanders all the money. He basically wastes it all in reckless living, in wild living. And then the famine comes. And, And the son's in a foreign land now. He's got no friends. He's got no money. He's got no home. He's got no food. And it says that, uh, you know, he's, he basically licenses himself out to a person, a citizen of the land, and he's, and he's basically tending to the pigs, and he's longing to eat what the pigs were eating. So he's totally hungry, totally destitute. And then there's an amazing verse, verse 17. The man comes to his senses. If you're reading the NIV, the man comes to his senses. In the ESV, in your text right now, that's printed in the bulletin, it says he came to himself. He woke up, that's what it says. He realizes at this point that he doesn't belong here. What am I doing here? You know, you know he realizes who he is. I am the son of a wealthy, rich, loving father. And I bet if I go back and confess, he'll at least let me back in. He's not going to leave me here to die like this. And so he's got this elaborate plan. He scripts it out. He says, I'm going to go up to my father. And my father is going to be upset with me. I'm going to go back to my father. And I'm going to put my tail between my legs. And I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Take me back as a hired hand. You notice in verses 18 to 20, he doesn't say, take me back as a slave. He says, I want you to take me back as a hired hand. In the ancient teachings, you know, if a family member was betrayed or if a family member was scorned or if he was wronged, um, more than an apology was needed. 
you know, it required more than just a sorry. You had to go back and you had to make uh, retribution. You had to pay retribution. You had to make restitution for the loss. And so here, he's thinking about how, what can I do to win my way back into the home? I have to pay him back. I've lost a tremendous amount of wealth. I'm going to have to pay it all back. So hire me back. Let me, you know, with the pay, I'm going to pay him back. He basically wants to work his way back into his father's love again. But here's the father. We know the story. He's standing on the driveway in undignified act because in an estate, the father's home was in the center and he usually stayed at a higher place. But here he is at the end of the home in the driveway and he's waiting day and night and he sees his son from far off and he does the most undignified act that a Jewish father at that time could do. He basically hitches up his clothes because he's running. He wore robes back then. He's hitching up his clothes. He bore his legs and he runs out to his son and he embraces him. You, you know, uh, Jewish, typical Jewish fathers back then, they never ran. It was undignified. Middle East, very, very hot. You came to the father. The father never came to you. You approached the father. The father would never initiate you. But here he is. He runs out to his son and he kisses him. Undignified act. Kisses him. He completely loses himself in his son. And his son starts to begin his script. He starts out and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But what happens? The father cuts him off. Doesn't even let him finish. Doesn't let him finish his, his, his script. Just before the son was going to say, take me back in as a hired hand, the father cuts him off and he says, I want you to get the best robe. What's, who's got the best robe in the house? The father. Get the best robe for him. In other words, I'm not going to let you wait for you to clean yourself up. I'm going to cover you up. You're naked. I need you to cover. I need you to get covered. You've lost your honor. Give him the ring. Your feet are tired. Give him the sandals. You're, you're hungry. Let's have a feast together. Let's celebrate. Let's have a party. You, I don't want you to earn your way back into my heart. I, want you to, I don't want you to earn your way back into, into this family. Jesus is teaching that there is no sense of dignity that God himself would not sacrifice to bring his children back home. Now, that's only half the story, right? The elder son is out in the field and he comes close because the workday has ended. He comes close and he starts to hear the music as he gets closer. And as the story unfolds, as the parable unfolds, he's incredibly upset. What is he upset about? There's this mention of the fattened calf, right? You have, you know, he's hearing, what's all this music about? And they say, well, your, your brother who was lost has come home and he killed the fattened calf. And then later on, the, and he's mad at his dad. He's mad at his father. He says, you never even gave me a goat, but you killed the fattened calf. What is this deal with the fattened calf, right? In ancient times, you rarely ate meat. You rarely ate meat in the ancient times. And if you had cows, if you were wealthy enough to own cows, if you had calves, you would wait till these calves would mature and they would have other calves. So to kill a fattened calf is, you know, it's not like you have, like, you knew or you were able to forecast how many cows you would have next year, right? Because you don't know how many calves one cow could produce. So if you kill a calf, you are potentially ruining your forecast for the next year. 
you could be ruining your income or your intake for the next year. You don't know how many cows you're going to have next year. So it was a tremendous delicacy, incredibly expensive. The most expensive food was this calf. And the elder says, I never even got a goat to celebrate with my friends. And you kill this calf. How dare you waste your wealth like this? That's basically what he's saying. He's saying, you know, I should have had a say in this. I have a right to have a say as whether or not this brother of mine can come in. You know, I have some rights here to make decisions. You should have consulted me on these things. You know, that's my stuff that he's taking, actually. You know why? Because the father divided his wealth among his sons. And so the younger took his share of the wealth. Everything that's left belongs to the older son. He said, that's my stuff that you're giving away. That's my calf that you're giving away. I should have at least been uh, you know, consulted about this. Verse 29. You know, it's, in, it's amazing how insulting the son is. He's, he doesn't say, you know, Father, I really wish you would have talked to me about this. You know, maybe we would have met over dinner and discussed this. That's not what he says. He says, look you. That's, that's the tone that he's talking to his dad. Look you. Look. He's insulting him publicly. He drags, he basically forces his dad to come out of this incredible banquet that he's prepared. You know, the music is blaring, and here they are on the outside in public view. He's berating his father about the decision he's made about his brother. And he's insulting him, verbally. And yet the father, so gracious. The father says, I still want you to come in. I still want you to come into the banquet. Any other father by now would have disowned you. Any other father by now would have let you go, would have kicked you out, but I love you and I want you to come in. And then the story ends. The younger son, you know the end of the story, right? You know, he comes back in, the father lets him into the house and there's a huge celebration, but the older son, we don't know what happens. We don't know whether or not he actually joins the banquet or not. Jesus leaves the story, the parable completely open-ended. He wants us to figure out how it's going to end. Incredible story. And there's two lessons we're going to learn from this. Two points, two lessons. One, we're going to understand and learn the radical nature of our sin. And we're going to see that in the two sons. And the second thing is the key to renewal. The radical nature of God's grace. The key to renewal for us. And we're going to see that through the Father and through the cost. And that's going to be the end of this message. We're going to redefine our understanding of sin, grace, God, salvation. Those four things are probably going to be addressed in this. Okay, So the first lesson, radical view of sin. To understand sin, you really have to redefine your understanding of God because most of us have a flawed understanding of God. Who is God here? God is a father. Jesus is, is referring basically to God as a father. Jesus refers to God as his father throughout the Gospels. And in this passage, he's basically explaining to us, he's explaining to us so we can understand what he means when he says that God is a father. When we think of a father, we think about the decision maker of the house. We think about the great patriarch. We think about the disciplinarian, the decision maker. But if you look at this text, it begins with what? Here's the father, and he's being scorned. Here's the father, and he's being rejected. 
Here's the father, and he is enduring emotional rejection, and he's losing his own son in the process. Tremendous pain, tremendous hurt. Here, you know, what Jesus is saying is, God may have power. God, you may describe and look at God with all of his majesty, but God is also loving. God is long-suffering, and he's longing for us. He's longing for his children. He's so tender, and he's so meek. And no one's ever described God like that. The Muslims don't describe God like that. The Jewish tradition doesn't describe God like that. Buddhists nor Hindus describe God like that. But here, Jesus is saying, you know, that although not a single religion will describe God as a father, I am telling you, God is humble and he's meek and he's tender and he's loving the way a true father would be. And secondly, now that leads into our definition, how we view sin in our lives. So we start with the younger brother. In the younger brother, we see a traditional, a traditional view of what sin is. Here's, you know, he's insulting his elders. You know, he's, he's sleeping around with prostitutes. He's self-indulgent. You know, he's uh, rejecting people left and right. He's dirty and he's low. And, and we look at this passage and we say, you know, this is what it is. You know, this is, he's disgusting and he's, he's with the pigs because he is a pig. And, that's, and that he should, be, he should have been rejected. We should have, he should have been kicked out of the house a long time ago. That's how we view the, the younger son. And that's how we view sin, what sin is. But look at the elder son. Then we get to the elder son. And although the younger son, we get a view of a, a, a traditional view of what sin is, the elder son gives us a radical view of sin, a very unusual but just as equally true view of sin. You know why? It's because both sons wanted the father's things but didn't want the father. Both sons wanted the father's stuff but didn't care much for the father. Each one used the father to get what they really wanted. They might have wanted prostitutes, women, sex, wealth, friends, acceptance, or status, or power, or their rights to be acknowledged, or their identity. But no matter what it is, both sons wanted an identity apart from the father. And, and, And one person, one son did it by being very, very bad. He left home completely, but the other son... The other one did it by being very, very good and by staying home. Both sons, they're both lost. The younger son is lost in his badness. The elder son is lost in his goodness. Now why? The younger son, the bad one, you know, he definitely definitely made it into the home. He made it back into the house. It's an interesting thing that Jesus is doing here. This is the shocking part of it. Imagine, he's speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to the religious He's speaking to the people who are addicted to their rights, who are addicted to being good, who are addicted to, you know, they had a system of 635 laws to define what is good. And, and he's speaking directly to them and he's saying, you know, you know, the younger son was lost, but he made it back in. He's in the party. We don't know what happened to the older son. Can you imagine what the religious... I can imagine because I'm, I'm one of them. I, you know, the, what it did for my heart as I was really going through this and it, it came at a very, very pivotal point in my life. This is, a, this is a radical way of viewing sin. It's a crazy way of viewing sin. The good son, he's lost because of his goodness. The good son is morally good. This is the religious, morally good. The irreligious, they're self-indulgent. You know, this, you know they're self-seeking. 
pursuing the things that they desire, looking for identity. Each side says, you know, whether you're the good son or the bad son, each side says, this is the way that you, you are found. This is the way you can become acceptable. <clears throat> Jesus says, both of you are wrong. They're both wrong. They're both lost. Both sons, equally lost. The religious people say, it's the moral people that are in, it's the, it's the immoral people that are out. The irreligious people say, it's the open-minded people that are in, it's the narrow-minded people that are out. Jesus says, the gospel is not in between. It's not something that's in between good and bad. It's not something that's in between moral and immoral. It's not something that's in between um, open-minded and narrow-minded or, you know, or anything like that. But the gospel, it's, don't, you can't mistake that. It's not something that's in between. And it's also not a pendulum that's swinging back and forth between the two. He says, neither sons are in. Neither of them are right. Neither of them are good. Neither of them are acceptable. It's the humble that are in, and it's the proud that are out. The younger son returns. He's got a very, very flawed view of the father. He figures he knows just enough about the father that the father is going to at least let him come back home. But his view of the father is so shallow, it's so, and, and yet he's still repentant. He's humble. That's what brings him back. Why does he get the music? Why does he get the feast? Verse 17, when he came to himself, he realized what he was meant to be. He realized who he is. He realized he'd been looking for a home all these, these years. He'd been looking for a home where there was no home. You know, he's been looking for acceptance where there's no acceptance. And that's why he's lost. He's an orphan. He's basically, even though he's a, he's a son of a very wealthy man in this foreign land, he's living like an orphan. So what is sin? Sin is being far from home. Very simple. Simply put. Sin is being far from the Father. Simply put. Sin is leaving home. Sin is living as an orphan. You know, um, you can do that by being very, very good, or you could do that by being very, very bad. But they both reject the Father. They both want an identity apart from the Father. How do you know you left home? How do you know that you, you're far from home, that you rejected the Father? That's the famine. The famine comes. When the famine comes, the famine is what makes you realize you're poor. <laughs> you know, the, the, the younger son had to come, he had to wake up. He had to come to his senses. It's not like, you know, he's with the pigs and he's sad. Of course he's sad. It's not like he's got tons of regrets. Of course he's got regrets. But at some point he wakes up and he realizes who he really is. He is his father's son. And he says, on that, I'm going to go back. Because at least, maybe he'll take me back as a hired hand. He won't leave me out. He knows just enough of the Father. That at least he'll, he'll, he'll take me back. And he realizes that, you know, my, what is sin? It's, what does it mean to wake up? Sin has promised to increase my potential, increase my options, increase my freedom, increase my joy, and make me more of a human being, more of myself, when in reality what sin does is it, it decreases your potential, decreases your, your, uh, poten- uh, your, your um, joy, decreases your freedom, decreases your options, makes you less of a person. It's dehumanized. This kid, this guy, I mean, you can't call him a kid. He's an adult. He's out there and he's eating pig's food. He's become less human, much less than human. And then he comes, you know, how do you become more human again? He comes to his senses. He wakes up. He came to himself. He realized who he, is, who he is. He realized who his father is. How do most people view 
and understand God. We think that coming back to the Father means that we've got to work our way back into his embrace. And if that's what you believe, you're still very, very far from home. If you think that the reason why God accepts you is because you've, if, you know, you've worked your way up for forgiveness, you're still very, very far from home. I used to be taught that the younger son is the sinner. Don't be like him. But we've got to be like the elder son because the elder son had rights because he stayed home, because he obeyed. And that's why he was so angry, you know, when this younger son came home. We have to be like the elder brother. That's, that's what I was taught growing up. And, you know, I realized that that's also why I've, I grew up very, very angry <laughs> in my life, you know, and why uh, most of us or many of us, we, we get so easily angered by people outside around us who don't live the way we want them to live, you know, and this is the radical nature about sin. Religion, you got to get this, religion is a tremendous source of so much strife in our lives because no one thinks that they're the religious one. Every one of us are tempted to think that we're not like the religion, we're not religious because we have irreligious qualities about us. And that's why it's so easy to overlook this situation with the elder son. Um, this, you know, we're angry about everything. We're angry about, you know, at least, and this is, I'm probably making a list for myself, but you can tell me if you relate with me. You know, we're angry about people being late, things not starting on time, being un- people being unprepared, you know, delays. I, I can't stand delays because I'm on the hook for delays. When I start later, I got to end later. And then I'm, I'm the one that's blamed for that. So we get angry about that, you know. Um, it, it, you know, we're, we're in the air, you know, because, you know, I'm not like that. I don't do that. But, you know, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that when you're in, in the heart, you're like that. And you, you're angry because people are not listening to you. You're angry because we get angry at our spouses. We get angry at our spouses because they disagree with us or because they don't, they don't operate or function the way we would function. I, was, I would never be like that. You, you don't, you know, you, I can't believe you're like that. I, I, do not, I don't even have the capacity to think the way you're thinking or live the way you're living. We get angry at our children because they disobey. You know, they disrupt us. You know, um, I'm, I'm very addicted to order, personally. You know, um, I have, you know, I'm not, a, not like a military guy, but I have like, a, I like things to be clean and I like things to be neat, you know? And the worst thing that happens in my life is when children come over because when children come over, you know, uh, everything's so nice and neat and you're like, whoa, don't, don't touch that. Come over here, you know? You know, whoa, come over here. No, that's not, you can't, that's not good for you. You know, come over here. You know, I want, you want your children to sit down and play Wii, you know, or something like that, right? But that's, that's, um, that's what children do. We get angry at the church because they gossip, because they're hypocrites. Oh, these people are such hypocrites. They, they say one thing and they live another way. We get angry at the poor because they, you know, they're lazy. Let them get their own jobs. Let them get their own. Why do we have to pay tax money for them? We get angry at, our, at the city because their priorities aren't straight. They should be focusing more on education. They should be focusing more on crime. Why are they focusing so much on these other things? We get, liberals get angry at conservatives because they're too narrow-minded. Conservatives get, marry, uh, get, get very angry at liberals because they're so wild their lifestyle they're everything that's wrong with the city here's what we're really saying I deserve better I deserve better serve me love me accept me give to me because I am living right we're far from home we're so far from home I'm a recovering Pharisee you know what that means to be a recovering Pharisee I can't say I used to be a Pharisee I'm a recovering 
Pharisee, because I, once you're an addict, you're an addict, right? You have to fight that every day, every moment of your life. That's what it means to be a recovering Pharisee. I'm a recovering religious person. If you look carefully in this text, the elder son, the elder brother, he doesn't use a single love word throughout his little discourse there. He says to us, he doesn't say father. That's a love word. He says, look you. He says, this son of yours, not my brother, not my brother who's been lost and feeding among pigs. He says, this son of yours. It's almost like it was his fault, his father's fault for having him. He says, you know, there's not a, you know, you, I have slaved, I have served you. There's not a single word of love here. He says, I have obeyed your commands. You know, I've obeyed your orders. You know, not once do you see here, anywhere. Now you're starting to see his heart. Not a single love word here. His love is mechanical. He's always angry. And it's because even though he never left home, He's very, very far from home. In fact, Jesus is implying here that he may actually be further from home. You know why it's open-ended? Because we don't know how it's going to end. The younger son came back. We know what happened to him. The older son, we're not sure. We're not sure. Jesus may be implying that the elder son may be more lost than the younger son, that the religious may be more lost than the irreligious. Nevertheless, both of them are so far from the Father's heart. And, and Christianity, this is the radical thing that we have to understand about sin. Christianity does not divide the world between good people and bad people. That's not enough. It's not sufficient. Good and bad is not sufficient. It doesn't go deep enough. Sin goes so much deeper than that. Your sin, my sin, goes so much deeper than that. What's the key to renewal here? And that's the last point. That's the second point. A couple of things. Three things, very quickly. First, we need to look at the Father. So gracious. The father is so gracious. The father reaches out. He initiates to both sons. He first rushes out to the younger son. He embraces his son. He kisses his son. It's not, it's not so much that you know, he waited for his son to repent before he got the robe and the ring and the sandals and the, and the calf and the party. It's actually the calf and the, and, the, and the party and the music and the robe and the ring and the sandals. That's what triggered the repentance. It's the embrace that triggered the, the repentance. The repentance didn't trigger the embrace. If you're the younger son, have you ever experienced the embrace of God? I know you know God. You must have heard about God. You're here because you say you know God. But if you're the younger son, have you ever experienced the embrace of God? the warmth of the embrace. You're never going to seek him unless he first seeks you. The father always initiates. Notice, the father also comes out of the party and greets the, uh, the older son, right? The older brother. Jesus is telling this story to Pharisees. And what does this tell you? You, you know, it's the religious people that are going to arrest him. It's the religious people that are going to condemn him. It's the religious people that are going to have him killed. And yet, what does he do? He's telling the Pharisees. You know why it's open-ended? He's calling the Pharisees and he's calling all of us. He's saying, what are you going to do now? The younger son got the father's embrace. This party's for you too. Will you come in? Will you come back to the father so you can experience his embrace? He's telling them to call back. 
The story's open-ended because he's telling them to call them back. Now, that's the first thing we need to understand, the, the initiating love of the Father. Secondly, we think, re- we think repentance is about lists. I used to think that repentance was about a list of sins, you know, that I got to put, you know, I got to, you know, one by one, I got to walk down this list. Um, the younger brother, he begins. He's lost, right? He begins that list. And the father cuts him off. He never even gets to the list. He says, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. All of a sudden, he gets the ring. He gets the sandals. He gets the robe. He gets the calf. He gets the music. He gets the party. The wealth is being spent now on his return. You know, tremendous cost for him. You know, but the elder brother, he's lost too. And the thing is, he's lost. Jesus may be implying that he's more lost, and yet he's got no list. He's got no list. How does a person with no list get to hear the music? This is so important. When a moralist commits sins, he feels terrible. In fact, I would venture to say he feels worse than when an irreligious person commits sins. He feels absolutely just downright terrible. But when he repents, he's still a moralist. He's still going to be angry when people are late. (laughs) He's still going to be angry when things end late. He's still going to be angry uh, when people live you know, differently than, than the way he lives. He's still going to get angry when people don't listen. That's, that's a moral. When a moralist sins, he feels bad, but he's still a moralist. You have to get this. Very, very important. But the difference between a Christian and a moralist is this. Christians repent of their wrongdoing. Absolutely. But Martin Luther says, not only do Christians repent of their wrongdoing, Christians also repent of their damnable good works as well. Because we use our good works as a way of not needing Jesus. And when you live using your good works to not need Jesus, to avoid Jesus as Savior, then what happens is it hardens you. Because if you don't need Jesus, you don't feel the embrace. You don't experience regularly the embrace of God. And so we have to repent of our desire to be our own Savior all the time, all the time. And when that happens, when you do that, when you really do that, It's going to change everything. And my friends, if it hasn't changed everything, you haven't repented of being your own savior. It has to change everything. It's going to affect the way you handle criticism. It's going to affect the way you treat people who are different than you. It's going to impact the way you treat other other people who live very, very different than you. You know, it's going to impact the way you use your materials, the things that you've earned, the things that you've gained for yourself your wealth. It's going to make you more generous. It's going to change everything. That's why we call it the new birth. That's why it's called being born again. It's a whole new life. You have to experience the embrace of the Father who initiates for you and you have to give up maintaining these lists. But the most important thing, the last thing is we need to be moved. We have to be melted. We have to be drawn back into the cost, what it costs to bring us back home to the Father. You know, the Father's inheritance completely wasted away. You know, um, he didn't own anything anymore. Once he divided his wealth, right, he, he has nothing. He's given it all up. <laughs> the younger son took it and squandered it, right? But he's become, the, the father has, has nothing. He's been bankrupted. So anything more he gives is given at a cost, is given at a sacrifice. The father says, give him the best robe. Well, whose robe was it? It was his robe. The father says, give him the ring. Well, whose ring was it? It was his brother's ring. He says, give him the sandals. Well, whose sandals are they? They're his brother's sandals. 
Kill the fattened calf. Well, who was that fattened calf intended for? It was the older brother. The money for the party, where did it come from? It belonged to the older brother. The wealth is completely divided. Everything that came to the younger son by this point was given at a sacrifice. The last verse, this is an amazing verse. He says, my son, everything I have, he's talking to the older son, everything I have is yours. That's literally true because he doesn't own anything anymore. Everything he has literally is his older brother's, it belongs to his older brother. The younger brother was brought back at tremendous cost to the older brother. And that's not a simple thing to do. It's very, very complex, very, very complicated. But somebody had to pay the cost. Somebody had to pay the cost for this younger son who squandered his wealth, completely destitute, to come back and become human again. The elder brother had to pay. And that's why he was so angry. Everything came at his cost. This younger son didn't deserve it. He believed he did. And why is he now wasting every day that this younger son lives in his house? He becomes one step poorer and the younger son gets one step richer and he doesn't deserve it. The elder is furious about the younger son. He's bitter about the younger son. He's resentful about the younger son. He says, I definitely would not have let this son come back in. I would have closed my gates to this guy. Why did Jesus give us such a terrible picture of an elder brother? Why did he give us such a bad example, a terrible picture of this elder brother? He's showing the Pharisees what they look like. And he's showing us what we look like. That's what he's doing. What would a true elder brother look like? In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews writes that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He draws us in. A true elder brother would go out at his own expense and look for the younger son. A true, if you really love your brother, a true elder brother would go out and sacrifice whatever he's got to bring his younger brother back home. He would offer he would offer his life at the cost of, you know, at his, at, at, at tremendous cost if, if, uh, if he loves his younger, uh, younger brother. You ever read uh, Pride and Prejudice? My favorite book, Pride and Prejudice. Um, Darcy, what does he do at the end? He's got tremendous wealth, but he has to spend that wealth to bring back Elizabeth Bennet's younger, younger uh, sister, who's basically gone off with his arch enemy. <laughs> but he's willing to pay to bring her back. He's willing to pay a tremendous amount, something that Wickham does not deserve, to bring them back, to restore peace in that family again. All because of his love. All because of his love. This younger brother, he didn't have a brother like that. He didn't have a brother like that, but we do, right? Jesus shows us a terrible elder brother so that we would be able to long for the true one. Jesus is the elder brother. Jesus doesn't leave the worldly estate to find us. He leaves the heavenly estate. Jesus doesn't just search for us at the cost of his wallet. He finds us at the cost of his life. Jesus leaves home not to distance himself from the Father. He loves his Father. He's intimate with his Father. And that's why he leaves home, because the Father asked him to. He obeys his Father to bring us back to him. He searches for us in the famine. 
He searches for us while we're lost. Remember that? Remember the wilderness? He's in the wilderness 40 days without any food. The devil tempts him and says, you know, you're hungry. Turn these stones to bread. And Jesus declines. He says, at the cost of my body, at the cost of my life, I would do anything to bring my people back home. That's what he does. And he does. And he does. Jesus doesn't sacrifice a a robe or a ring or sandals. He sacrifices identity. He sacrificed his royalty, his authority, his power, his glory, his wealth. He literally became poor, but he had no home on earth, but he cosmically becomes poor. On the cross, Jesus is stripped naked so we could be clothed. We could be clothed with robes of righteousness. This younger brother, he probably came home. He was probably naked. At the least, he had tattered clothing. That's why the father says, quick, get the best robe for him. You know, tremendous exaggeration. But Jesus says, that's not even, even enough. This story pales in comparison to what the father sacrificed for you. The father sacrificed. He says, I'm going to clothe you, not with the best robe, with my own son and his righteousness. That's what I'm going to do. He had to sacrifice his son. This father sacrificed a fattened calf. Our father sacrificed his own son to bring us home. The younger brother got sandals for his feet. Jesus got nails. The younger brother felt the embrace in his arms. Jesus got nails in his hands. When Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, Now, on the cross, I am experiencing the cosmic famine. I have lost everything. I have obeyed the Father perfectly and yet I have have sacrificed and given up everything. I have nothing left. I am like a pig. I am the lowest. I am dirty because I have become sin. I have become sin. And the thing is, in Hebrews, he says, it's printed in, in in the word of encouragement there, you know, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. You know what that joy was? It's to see us back with the Father. That was his joy. That was his joy. That was the father's joy. That means the father became bankrupt. He lost his treasure. He lost his son for you. And the son became bankrupt on the cross. He gave up everything for you to bring us back home. This, this is what's going to make everything a famine. This is what makes everything a famine compared to knowing Jesus. You get that? You see that? This is the truth that's going to wake you up. Whenever you're in sin, whenever you're, you're, in, you're in anger or your pride is steeped up, you know what catches you? This is the truth. That the Father has spared nothing. Everything at his expense for you to bring you back home. A lot of us were younger. We're the younger brother. You know how you know you're the younger brother? Why do we come to the city? Why do we go to the great cities in the East Coast? It's because we're trying to find ourselves. Self-discovery. The pursuit of what makes us acceptable before other people. So a lot of us are younger brothers. And we're skeptical of God and we're skeptical of church, maybe because we have bad experiences or um, maybe because it just seems, you know, the story itself, you know, it's, we, we only hear it in little bits and pieces and there are a lot of gaps. Would you consider today that Christianity might be just more than a religion? You know, in fact, the ancients... The ancient Romans and the Greeks, they called Christianity the anti-religion. There was nothing religious about Christianity. They knew that because they were religious people. 
The Romans had pantheon of gods. They understood what it means to sacrifice to the gods. They understood what it means to obey the gods, to obey fate and obey its will. But they saw Christianity was completely counter to that. They called it the anti-religion. Would you consider to keep listening? Let it fill in the gaps over time so that the gospel would wake you up and draw you back into this amazing father who's so forgiving, so loving. Now, if you're an elder brother, you know, I'm both. I'm very good at both. But if you're, I, my pendulum tends to swing towards the elder brother side. This story is actually for you. It's intended for you. And it's open-ended for you. Jesus wants you to respond. Jesus wants you to respond to tell him how the story's going to end. <clears throat> we have to come to the truth that it's not so much that they're so bad out there, but we're so good sometimes, we're blind. Our goodness has blinded us. It prevents us from seeing how much we need Jesus in our lives. We think we have it figured out, you know? Ten years from now, you're going to look back and you say, oh my gosh, I had nothing figured out, you know, in life. And ten years from then, you're gonna, it, the cycle's going to continue. We have nothing figured out. Whether you're an elder son or a younger son, will you come to the amazing reality that your sin is greater than you could ever dare imagine? And will you come to the equal and greater, actually the greater reality, that God's grace in Christ is greater than you could ever dare hope or dream? That's the gospel, the loving Father. Will you pray with me? Let's come back to the Father. You know, a lot of us have lived this week victorious lives as Christians. You think you've lived victorious lives as Christians, but that's because your goodness has blinded you. And a lot of us, we feel like we're the younger brother. We've lived terrible lives. We have lousy homes. We have lousy careers. We have made so many mistakes with tons of regrets. The Father, you need to see the Father both of us, we need to see the Father coming out. Let his love initiate with you. Will you respond to that today? Let me pray for us.